I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would please, at this time, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. Those of us who live in this area know that the uh, North Tampa Bay region is not exactly the center for Reformed theological studies. There are not many churches here holding to and preaching the historic gospel, worshiping God according to the regulative principle in simplicity and in truth. However, at least... I don't believe that when God looks upon us here in this region, in this part of the state of Florida, that He says to us, as He says to Pergamum in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We may have our problems, we may have our shortcomings, but I don't believe that we're where the throne of Satan is, or where Satan's throne is. In 2011, we took a study, we began a study at the beginning of the year in our New Year's Perspective messages, which we have done every year. And in 2011, we focused on this church and our Lord's address to the church at Pergamum. And as you know, we are up to the last church, the seventh church, the church in Laodicea. So for the past several Lord's Days, I've been reviewing briefly what we saw in the previous churches, since this will be our last shot here. And what we saw from Pergamum, I'm going to bring to you this morning, and remind you, first of all, that we looked at the place, Pergamum. Now you remember that when we look at the books that are mentioned, or the churches, I should say, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, addressed by our Lord, that there is a pattern, and it's called a preaching route, where the ship docks in Ephesus, and it kind of goes north, and then it hits this northern city, and comes down to the last city, which is Laodicea, which is almost directly across from Ephesus. So it goes in a half oval. The top city, the city at the northernmost point is Pergamum. And Pergamum was situated more or less on a mountain. In fact, the name of the city, Pergamum, means height or elevation. Pergamum had a huge acropolis. You remember that from your Greek history. In fact, Pergamum had the second largest Acropolis in the entire Greek kingdom. It was huge. And it was, as is said, breathtaking. A breathtaking architectural accomplishment. Pergamum, in this Acropolis, housed a huge library of over two hundred thousand volumes. And we know from history that Mark Anthony, when he conquered this, took that library and gave it to 
Cleopatra as a wedding gift. That was the library at Pergamum. Pergamum was famous for inventing something. They invented a new substance upon which they could write because the calfskin and other items that were being used were in short supply. So Pergamum invented parchment. And it actually takes its name, parchment, from Pergamum. And that's where parchment was invented and that let them have that big library. So that's the identity of the city. Well-known city. Big city. Now let's look at the identity of the church that was at the city that our Lord Jesus was addressing. We don't know how it began, but it is likely that Pergamum was visited by Paul. We know that Paul never went to Laodicea, but it is likely he did visit the church and possibly even establish the church there in Pergamum. And we do know something about the leaders at Pergamum. If you look in verse 13, he speaks of my faithful witness, Antipas. My witness, my faithful one. It is believed that Antipas was the first pastor at Pergamum. And he may likely be the messenger that was addressed in this letter. Because as it says in verse 12, and to the angel, the word angel is simply messenger. He wasn't talking to angels with wings because angels don't come and preach or teach to churches. The word is messenger. And the likely messenger that Jesus was addressing may have been Antipas, his faithful witness to this church. And he was, even as Jesus says, killed. He is believed to be the first martyr killed by the Roman Empire. Not the first martyr in the church, that was Stephen, but he was killed, as you remember, by the Jews. But Antipas was likely the first martyr killed by the Roman Empire. So that's sort of the church there. And we see even in what our Lord mentions to the church that they are, there are some there that are standing firm. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But there are others who are wavering. But before we get to that, we've talked about the identity of the city, the identity of the church. I want to mention to you the identity of the enemy. And I promised some of you a few weeks ago that this is pretty interesting stuff. Jesus says to the church in in Pergamum, that I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, why would he say that? Because there in Pergamum was not only the center of pagan worship in this entire region, but the largest pagan altar ever built, at least known to man. The altar there in Pergamum was 117 feet wide and almost as deep, 109 feet deep. It stood three stories and more high. Three plus stories high. This was a huge pagan altar. And it had steps in the front, 65 feet wide, leading up to like the middle of it, so almost a story and a half. And you'd go up these steps and you could walk on one section of it and walk 
through other sections of it. It was huge. And it was so impressive. Hitler had it dismantled and moved to Berlin, where it is to this day. It was the largest pagan altar, and it was believed that the altar was built to Zeus, the king of gods, small g, of course, the king of gods. And this is where Satan dwelled, according to our Lord Jesus, and why he likely said that to the church there at Pergamum. This is what they faced every day. Worshippers of Zeus, worshippers of the emperor, worshippers of all kinds of gods. How do you maintain a church in the midst of that with Satan's altar right down the street? Like I said in the beginning, we may not have it quite that bad, but may n- make no mistake, it's getting there. We live in a land that now promotes sin. Promotes it. Forces it upon unsuspecting people. And we live in a land that is rapidly being seen as a place where Satan lives. And so our church, and every true church that loves God and loves His Word, fights against such things. But now let's talk about the praise given to Pergamon. That's the place, Pergamon. Let's remember what we saw when we looked at the praise given to Pergamon. As Jesus says in 13 again, as he speaks to the fact that, uh, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. That's what we must do. That's what every true church made up of true believers must continually do. Hold fast His name. And that term to hold fast His name can be seen as taking hold of it. Viewing the name of Christ with highest value and purpose. That's what He's saying. In the midst of this situation, you took hold of My name and viewed Me with highest value. More value than the pagan gods and all the things that were going on around them. And then he says that they did not deny the faith. They maintained, and we saw this in our study, doctrinal integrity. Doctrinal integrity by some in that church. Though they were in the center of demonic worship, they kept the faith. And it is what we must do as Christians. But one last thing I want to mention. He also points out the problem with Pergamum. As he goes on to say, verse 14, But I have a few things against you. And he goes on to say that some of the people had been drawn away to false teaching and to false gods. Pagan gods. That's serious stuff. And as we're going to see in our study in Laodicea, in many ways, Pergamum is a typical church where you have some believers who are standing firm for Christ 
And then you have unbelievers, tares among the wheat, who are distracted by worldly things and do not care about sound doctrine or the name of Christ. They're just church members. We don't want just church members. We want people who are, in the terms of Laodicea, hot for Jesus. So Jesus points out this problem to them, but then in the midst says in verse 17, He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And he encourages them to continue to stand firm for his name and for his truth. And we take heart and take hold of that encouragement even in ourselves. How important it is that we strive for His name. That we stand for His truth. A very brief review of our Lord's address to the church in Pergamum. Now, turn over to chapter 3. And let's continue on in our study of the church in Laodicea. Beginning in verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. That's where we began in our study here, the description of the one addressing the church. The Amen, that is translated actually true. That's the word. He is all truth. He is the witness who is faithful and true. And he is the beginning of creation. Not that he's the first one to be created, but he is the one who began all creation. That's the description of the one addressing the church. And we're currently looking at his depiction of the church there in Laodicea. In verse 15, he says, I know your deeds. And then he says, Nothing. There are no deeds that he points to to say anything good about the church in Laodicea. In every other church, in the six previous churches, he said, I know your deeds that you do this. You do good things. There's faithfulness. You hold my word. He said something good about every other church, not Laodicea. Instead, to Laodicea, he says, I know that you're neither cold nor hot. We talked about the fact that the word cold could be looking at an individual who is totally indifferent to the gospel or the things of God. Someone who is cold to God doesn't care about God. I was watching the news last night, and it was even replayed this morning on the news that there was a, some kind of parade in, in Tampa in Ybor City yesterday. And I couldn't help as I looked at that parade. There were all kinds of people standing on both sides of the city. How it looked very much like New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And there were just people that were drunk and out of control, hanging over balconies, throwing beads, all this stuff. And I said to my wife, I said, that's cold. They don't care about God. There's no appearance of godliness in any of them. But I remember that our Lord Jesus is not talking to an individual. He's talking about a church. And a cold church is a church that doesn't even care about its appearance of godliness. 
or truth or faith. It's just a world religion. People come, put in their time, and they go. They don't care if they're evangelical. They don't care if they use the Bible. It's just a cold church. And there are a lot of cold world churches. Cults, some of them fall into this category. Just cold. But then he says you're neither cold nor hot. And we looked at the whole matter of being hot as not just some super Christian. There's a whole lot of wrong theology out there today that says there's a carnal Christian, there's a good Christian, and maybe like a super Christian. Well, that's just baloney. That's not what we saw in the Scriptures. That's the Greek term, by the way. It's baloney. But we saw in the Scriptures that Jesus teaches that every true disciple of mine is one characterized as those who will take up their cross daily and follow Him. That's hot for Christ. That's a true Christian. And again, He's speaking to a church. So a hot church will be a church Not super Christians, not a super church, but a church that in humility and all zeal as possible will stand firm for the truth of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. But Laodicea was neither one of those. They were neither cold nor hot. Jesus says to them, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm. And he uses that term, lukewarm. Now, this is where we left off last week. And I reminded you of the city Laodicea having no wells or streams that they could depend upon for their water. So their water had to be piped in via aqueduct. My understanding is that it was an underground aqueduct, not one of those that you may have seen pictures of that are elevated, but it was an underground aqueduct, and they would bring the water into the city, and the water was awful. It looked bad, it tasted bad, and it was constantly lukewarm. It was brownish in color, and those who have done studies and Uh, Those who have done archaeological digs there have found the pipes and they're just corroded and they had horrible stuff in them, probably lead and all kinds of stuff. And so if you weren't from Laodicea and you went to Laodicea and drank the water, you would do this. And that is exactly what Jesus is referring to. It is an obvious reference to their putrid, horrible, lukewarm water. And he compares them to that. And he says that you are lukewarm. And we looked last Lord's Day at what it might mean to be lukewarm in terms of spiritual matters. Because he's not talking about their water, he's talking about their heart. And what does it mean for one to be lukewarm? It's a hypocrite, a phony Someone who has the appearance or tries to have the appearance of being a Christian, but in reality is wedded to the things of the world. We looked at the example our Lord gave of the Pharisees over and over. He called them 
hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 23, multiple times, hypocrites, and the word is two-faced, and it means you're a phony. That's what lukewarmness is. It's someone who comes around, oh, I love the Lord Jesus. I'll be praying for you. And he's just, oh, we're so excited about Jesus. But in reality, he's involved in drugs or drunkenness or lewdness and all kinds of sin. They're phonies. And even if they're not involved in all kinds of sin, in terms of truth, they are far from it. Just the appearance of religious. But now this morning, how do I know that? I know that because Jesus tells them so. And this is where we pick up, as I remind you again, that our Lord is not talking about an individual. He's talking about their church. And so our Lord Jesus says to this church, you are lukewarm. Now, you know, we talked about cold or hot. And so some people might get the thought or the impression that our Lord Jesus is talking about a mixture of cold and hot. Because that will give you lukewarm. So this would be then a church that has some saved people and some lost people. But that is not the case. That was the case in the other churches that Jesus addressed. Some saved people, but yet I have this against you. Some lost people. That's not the case in Laodicea. The understanding from theologians and from reading the text is, there was nobody good there. He has nothing good to say about anyone in the church at Laodicea. Jesus says nothing good about them. So let's see how he depicts them as we look down to verse 17 and we see the outward appearance of the church in Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is, as we will see, how they saw themselves. There's a a real problem with churches when they look at themselves and what they're accomplishing instead of comparing what they're doing to the Word of God and what it demands. Laodicea looked at itself and Laodicea got a false understanding. Notice Jesus says that this is what you see. You say, you say, and in a few moments we'll get the contrast, but I say. And so we look at him and he says, you say, first of all, I am rich. No doubt it was a wealthy church. In Laodicea, I remind you that one of the things we saw when we talked about the various things that were going on in the city of Laodicea, one of them was they were a center for banking. They were so rich that when an earthquake wiped out Laodicea, they didn't even take Rome's money to rebuild. They said, we'll do it the way we want. We got our own money. That's how wealthy Laodicea was. They were rich. 
Not only were they a center for banking, but they were rich because they had all that black wool. They, had, they were noted for sheep that had black wool that was really silky and shiny, and it was very valuable. And they were also famous for their eye salve that was used or developed in the medical center that was in Laodicea. So they were rich, rich, rich. So when you go to the church in Laodicea and Clifford comes around with the plate, it was full. And all kinds of money in the plate. Because they had rich people there, whether they were bankers or whether they were investors in sheep or whether they were doctors at the medical center, they were rich. So here we are. We are rich. That's what they say. We are rich. But I tend to believe that there's more than material richness being spoken of by our Lord. Because when you go to a church, even if it's wealthy, or even if it's not wealthy, there's a lot of people who think they're rich in the things of God. We are so rich in the things of God. Look at all this work we're doing for Jesus. We're really doing a good job. Our church is growing. Our building is getting bigger. We're really filled with the Spirit. Look at all the evidence. We're rich. I don't think I can really say that. Look at all the evidence. They thought they were rich. Certainly, they were wealthy in material goods. But no doubt they thought they were rich in the things of God. Really blessed by God. Everybody's happy. Everybody feels good. And they thought they were rich in the things of God. Now, here's why I say that his speaking of richness had to do with their thinking of spiritual richness. Because the next thing he says is, you say that I am rich and have become wealthy. Wealthy. We are wealthy. Again, it was a wealthy place, so they were well off. But then he says to them that they thought they were in need of nothing. You say that I become wealthy and have need of nothing. Perhaps of all the things that Jesus says that they thought of, this was the worst. What kind of an arrogant church thinks it has need of nothing? Because what does every church need? Every church needs Christ. Every church needs His Word. Every church needs direction from our Lord Jesus Christ. Every church needs the triune God at the center of their worship and all that they do. And His Word is the direction of that. Now, I know that they did not have the Bible yet, the complete Scripture. But I read one commentator, and I liked what he said. He said, these guys didn't want Paul to visit. They don't want to hear it. They don't want Paul's letter read, even though he told Colossae, their sister church, make sure that letter is read in Laodicea as well. They didn't want it. 
We've got what we want. We don't need anything else. That's dangerous. I've heard oftentimes in my life as a pastor and as a Christian, the worst thing that God can do to a church or to an individual is to leave them alone. When God leaves you alone, you are alone. Do you realize that that's a description of hell? Separated from God for all eternity. Left alone. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea. You think you don't need direction. We know what we're doing. You know, it may not be exactly according to what the Bible teaches or what the Bible says we should be doing. It may be a little bit irreverent and it might be rock and roll or, you know, it might not be exactly what, you know, would be considered holy or godly, but it's working. We're rich. We're wealthy. We're blowing and going. We don't need any direction. We don't need anything. We've got it all. The sad thing is, um, as I mentioned, don't bother coming here, Paul. We don't need the Word of God. I know I want to bring some uh, application to some of these, more or less, when we get through much of it, but I can't help. But stop now and think of how many churches think they've got it all. How many churches look at the evidence? Oh, look at the bigness of our church. It's so big. It's so nice. It's so comfortable. People are coming from everywhere. It's great. We're having a great time. That's the way they see themselves. But what is their doctrine? What is their heart? What are their hearts like? How do they hold the Word of God in the midst of their church? How do they view the God who is the eternal, omnipotent God? Is there awe and reverence or disrespect and frivolity? The church at Laodicea didn't even want what God had to say. Don't worry, God. We've got it covered. We could take care of things without you or your word. We know better. I remind you that a lot of people, and including this church, it was thought, had what is known as a higher knowledge mentality. One of the first heresies to seek to invade the church was known as Gnosticism. And we went through this in the first weeks of our study with Laodicea, that there was this thing called Gnosticism that was around, and Laodicea was likely involved in it. That they thought that God was something different than what the Bible says He is. And they thought that Jesus was something different than what the Bible says He was. And they were involved in that. 
So we don't need to hear any of your theology or your truth. We've got it covered. But what a difference between what they saw and what Jesus saw. Look at the text. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I told you when we first talked about Laodicea and the things that they had, like the money and the wool and the medical university that developed the eye salve, You do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're not wealthy. You don't have that eye cure. And you don't have that wonderful wool from those black sheep. You're poor, blind, and naked. But look at the first thing that he says. He says, you are Wretched. A wretched one could be the understanding of the Greek. It is that they were a despised bunch. It's not like you look at them and say, Oh, they're wretched. I feel so sorry for them. Like you see them and and you have sympathy for them. That's not this word. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. You may be familiar with this passage. Our Lord is teaching the scribes and the Pharisees about their own sinfulness and wickedness. And he tells them, beginning in verse... Well, I can't really take the time to go through everything that he says. So um, look at verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a well around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to his vine growers to receive the produce. You understand what's going on. It's his land. He built the grove. He did that. He put the wine press in it. It's all his. And he rented it out. Now, how did they collect rent? And send him a check every month. They were to give them the produce from what they grew. He was to give of them a portion of their profit, as it were. And so he sent his servants to collect. Verse 35, the vine growers took the slaves and beat one and killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent a group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son, sent his own son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. You see, they knew it wasn't theirs. The son was the heir. They were never going to get this land. They were never going to get this vineyard 
The heir was the son. So they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? Now, you know exactly what he's talking about because you know your New Testament. But put yourself in the place of those he was speaking to. They're caught up in the story. They're caught up in what's going on. The vineyard is built. The vine growers there. They're supposed to give a portion of their produce to the owner of the vineyard. And what do they do? They kill the servant. They mistreat other ones of the servants. And then he sends his own son and they kill him. They take him and kill him. And so Jesus says, what will be done to them? Verse 41. They said to him, they will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent it out to those who will pay their Pay him the proceeds in the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone, and this came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. They knew he was talking about them. And then they got mad and wanted to kill him just like the parable. But before that, what did they say? Those wretches should come to a wretched end. Now you take that power, that passion, that judgmental attitude towards the vineyard, the vine growers in the vineyard. That's what Jesus is saying to Laodicea. You wretches. You wicked wretches. You deserve a wretched end. And as Jesus said to the nation of Israel that the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to those who will produce fruit, which is the church, He's saying to the church, if you don't produce fruit, I'll take my lampstand away from you too. And so to Laodicea, they were in danger of being condemned by our Lord as he calls them wretches. Can you imagine a church who is supposed to be worshiping Jesus, has the outward appearance of worshiping Jesus, who thinks they're worshiping Jesus, called by Jesus, wretches. This is an insult. This is horrible. And it shows that only what Jesus sees matters. We may see ourselves like this. We may see ourselves like that. We may think we're doing a good job. How does Jesus see you? It's a fearful thing to lead a church. It's not fun and games. 
I have to answer to God according to Hebrews 13. I have to give an account. How does Jesus see us? Are we wretches in His eye? Because let's face it, people in America or Canada for the most part are rich. None of us lives in shacks or caves. We're blessed. We have a lot. And we can sit back and think, wow, look at us. We're rich. We're rich in the things of God. We're rich in our pockets and our pocketbooks. We don't need anything. God help us to never get to that point. I look to and believe indeed that God has and will bless our church. We own property because of God's blessing. But we don't look at it with pride. We look at it with thankfulness and humility that we were given the opportunity to be stewards of this. And we still have need of everything that comes from God. And so this is what they were saying of themselves, that they were rich and had need of nothing, but Jesus saw them and says, you are wretches. There's only one way, I tell you, to be sure that you're not being seen by God as being wretches, and that is to have a church that is constantly careful to worship God in spirit and in truth from hearts that are alive, and from the Scriptures. We talked about Pergamum a little while ago, and he he commended those that were there for their clinging to His Word and for keeping the faith. And We talked about how that is the truth, and you need to have the truth. But don't forget Ephesus, who had that, but lost their first love. You must have both. A heart for the Word of God and careful and sound doctrine of God, but a heart that loves God and loves His people. That's how you know you're not being seen as wretched in the eyes of God. But we must go on. He continues in verse 17. And he says, You do not know that you are wretched. And then he says, Miserable. Miserable. Now, the word could be and is translated in 1 Corinthians as pitiable or pitiful. But don't get the thought that here he's speaking of them as being forlorn and downcast, that they're miserable. Oh, woe is us. That's, that's just absolutely not likely the case. The case was more of the fact that they thought they were fine. That's what he's been saying. You think you're rich. You think you've become wealthy. You think you have need of nothing. So it's not like they were miserable in that sense of being forlorn or or upset or downcast. No, no, no. What he's saying is you are to be pitied in your ignorance. You think you are this but you are to be pitied in your ignorance. 
In fact, the term used in 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul who says if we are of those who do not believe in the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, then we're fools. We are most pitiable. We ought to be pitied by the world for our ignorance and foolishness. And so Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you are to be pitied for your ignorance in not seeing the truth. The truth of what you are really like as a church. Going about your church activities, but oblivious to the plight of hell that awaits you. And again, I can't help but say, how many churches, how many men and women in churches does this describe? In the coming verses, Jesus calls on them to repent. Repent! Turn from your sin! And yet I know from my own experience And from seeing what is around and looking at these people on television, that there is church after church after church after church that thinks that they're rich and wealthy and in need of nothing, but they are to be pitied in their obliviousness. They don't even realize that they don't have the Word of God and the truth of God in their church. And this is what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Church is not merely a feeling. Worship is not merely a feeling. I believe it should have feeling. We should have excitement and joy and awe for the God that we come to worship. But it's not just feeling. Worshiping God is worshiping rightly as He demands, as we said, in spirit and in truth. From people who have hearts that are right, that want to offer praise to the living God, born out of the guidelines given to us by our King. So there's discipline. There's order. And within that context comes forth a love of God born out of a greater understanding of Him from the Scriptures and from that love of God that we find in the Scriptures all that God has done. We have zeal for telling others of Christ and His wonderful salvation because we don't want them to go to the place that God and our Lord, even Jesus, describes as hell. The more you know about God from His Word, the more you will love Him. The more you love Him, the more you will seek to serve Him. And so God help us not to be fooled by gimmicks, games, or nonsense, but rather to bring true praise from true hearts. 
and to come Sunday by Sunday with a hunger for His Word. Not for comfort or ease. It's not for music. But for God. For His glory. And for His Word. Christians come to church and they say, I want to go to church to praise the God who saved me from my sin. I hunger to hear the Scriptures. I want to worship the living God. That's why I come. And I just say that if you are not here for that reason today, you need to wonder indeed if you are even saved. Or if God looks at you and says, you are to be pitied. I don't want that to be the case. Even you kids need to hear the word of God. To know that you are right before the true God. And you will know that as you have love for Him. Born from a heart that has been saved by Him and a hunger for His Word that He alone puts into His people. This is what we strive for. God, help us to do so. To continue to take our Lord's admonition seriously and strive to be people of the book and people who love Him from our hearts. We'll continue next Lord's Day with Jesus' rebuke. These are serious words, I know. But they are what Jesus says. And we need to know them and understand them. And to strive as a church to not be lukewarm, but to be hot. Let's pray.